Hi, I'm James Ferdier, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. As a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. For today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Jeffrey Powell from Yale University. He was here to talk about Aedes aegypti mosquitoes, the diseases they carry, how they spread, and perhaps most interesting, new methods for understanding how they've spread around the world. I'll let Dr. Powell explain, so let's go straight to the interview. Dr. Powell, thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. Okay, so before we get into the uh, contents of your article, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about Aedes aegypti in particular and why it's a species of concern and, and something we find ourselves talking about so often today. Yeah, uh, Aedes aegypti uh, is one of the most important mosquitoes in the world. Uh, there are something like 3,500 named uh, species of mosquitoes only about 10 or 20 of which really are of concern to us. Most, most mosquito species you'll never see. But the ones that uh, have uh, affected humans and humans through history, there are a few that have been very important, Anopheles in, in, in Africa, especially with malaria. But Aedes aegypti uh, is a primary vector of yellow fever originally. That's why it was originally called, it's given a common name, the yellow fever mosquito, uh, because it was discovered to be the transmitter of yellow fever virus around 1900. Um, and since it has been shown, the other viruses that have come out of Africa too, uh, yellow fever virus comes out of Africa, uh, dengue fever, which is all over the world now in tropics and subtropics, is also primarily transmitted by Aedes aegypti. Uh, then there's another virus called chikungunya, which you may have heard of. It's a little less uh, known. But in recent years, in the last 15 years or so, it also has gone all over the world. And in some countries like Brazil right now, where dengue used to be really important. Now there's more chikungunya than dengue. And then finally, the last virus that became uh, notorious a few years ago is Zika. And so Aedes aegypti is also the primary vector of the Zika virus. So because of all of those, those viruses that have you know, affected humans, uh, and one of the interesting things historically, if one look goes back to the founding of the Americas, or I should say when the Europeans uh, discovered America, um, a lot of the early history of, of founding and, and of the, when the Spaniards and the British and Portuguese came over, uh, yellow fever did a lot of what they did. And there's one uh, very nice book that was cited in that article by John McNeil. Uh, I think it's called The Mosquito Empires. It gives it's a historian's view of the founding of the Americas and the role that this mosquito played in a lot of the uh, key events in the founding of America. And I want to get back into that history in a little bit, um, but but I was hoping you could satisfy a little bit of curiosity about uh, about this species for me before we move on. And it's is there anything that we know that makes this species a particularly important vector uh, yes. for these diseases? I mean, what is it about it? You know, we're all being bitten by mosquitoes presumably all the time. Why why is this one the one that seems to you know be spreading disease? Well, 
Aedes aegypti is native to sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, so it is native to the place where these viruses come from. And if you stop and think about it, we also are native to Africa. We are African primates that spread around the world. And so we share a common evolutionary history between humans, uh, the viruses, and Aedes aegypti in Africa. And when humans started leaving Africa and going around the world, uh, it brought with it the mosquito and the viruses. Now, the key event here, and why Aedes, why Aedes aegypti? In sub-Saharan Africa, which is its native home, uh, you can still find the ancestral types. They live in uh, tropical rainforest, the larvae, which require small bodies of water. The primary place where you'll find larvae are in tree holes. Tree holes accumulate rainwater, and that's where the species will lay its eggs. And uh, the adults, the females, need to take a blood meal in order to make eggs. And they primarily bite non-human animals. Somewhere in the history, and we think it's probably on the order of a thousand or a couple thousand years ago, as humans were expanding their, uh, their occupation of, of uh, sub-Saharan Africa, they started uh, forming villages and spreading more and more into close to the rainforest, cutting down the rainforest. Uh, they came into close contact with this mosquito. And our speculation <coughs> is that, especially in, in places like West Africa, uh, that have prolonged dry periods during the year, the normal forest breeding site, those tree holes dry up during the dry season. <coughs> and any... Uh, human villages that are close by those uh, forests, the humans would have to be storing water. Uh, for example, Angola is a good example of having a dry season. In Angola, there's a six-month dry season where they average about two millimeters of rain per month. So you can see that six months with very, very little rain. And any human habitat close to the forest would have the humans would have to be storing water in their villages, and so you can imagine the female <clears throat> in the forest, where her uh, who's looking to lay her eggs, and her usual uh, tree holes are all dried out in the in the dry season. The if they could find and eventually find or, or wander into the villages and find. Uh, of stored water, a, a pot or a, uh, a vase or whatever they're storing their water in, she would find a good place to lay her eggs. And we think that's what happened. They started using stored water in human villages, uh, especially during the dry season. And so this was the one mosquito. There are probably, again, I don't know how many species of 80s mosquitoes in the same genus in sub-Saharan Africa. There have to be a couple hundred anyway. This was the one 80s that found the human uh, habitats, that found the human stored water, and then became associated with humans. 
And again, you can imagine that if she lays her eggs in stored water and it's a six months dry period, it takes about two or three weeks for those eggs to develop into adults. And any of the females that come off now uh, in the village, um, she wouldn't have much choice during the dry season except to lay her eggs back into the same kind of container. So they evolved this, this uh, habit of breeding as larval, in the larval stage in human containers. And of course, once they started doing that, they also would start using the most available blood source in the villages, which were humans. So this, so I call it the domestication. It's like the forest uh, form that was an animal biter and breeding in tree holes became domesticated, that is associated with humans and uh, breeding in their, uh, their water containers and preferring humans now for blood meals. So it's a case in which, you know, humans are providing, first of all, the habitat in the form of stored water. And then after that, they're also providing the food source. So it makes sense that they would kind of, you know, come along for the ride. That's right. Exactly. Let's, let's move the story forward then. Um, a thousand years ago, uh, people have moved into these, you know, drier West African landscapes. And, you know, the mosquito has followed and become domesticated, as it were. Um, what happens next? Um Beginning around 1500, of course, uh, Columbus was 1492, but it wasn't long after that, that the Europeans, primarily uh, Spaniards and especially the Portuguese early on, would uh, started a profitable trade in native Africans. And so they were supplying uh, work workers for the budding sugarcane industry in the new world. And they were primarily native Africans. So ships would leave ports in Portugal and Spain, primarily come down the West coast of Africa, fill up their ships and cross over to the new world. Now this early trade, especially in the, let's say the first century, uh, was actually primarily Portuguese. And the Portuguese primarily uh, would stop in Angola, or what today we call Angola. It wasn't called that at the time. So this would be between about 1510 and 1600, something like that. They were stopping in Angola, or what's today Angola. It was a primary place where they would pick up and do their trade. And of course, in those days, it took two to three months for the uh, ships to go from West Africa now across to the New World, let's say South American coast, Brazil. Um, and so they would have to store water on ships. So before they took off to, to leave, they would fill up every container they had with fresh water to make the trip across. And of course, now when they pick up fresh water from these Angolan uh villages or towns along the coast there. Uh, there would be 80s Egypti larvae in those uh, containers. There would be eggs probably as well. And so they were transporting the mosquito as well. So uh, we think that's how they, they got from the uh, old world, Africa, to introduce into South America and the Caribbean first um, by the 
slave trade. Okay, and then there are further, you know, expansions that we know about that occur. Yes, it goes all over, yeah. And it sort of travels all over the world, bringing with it the diseases? Correct. And as I said, the uh, yellow fever is unknown outside of Africa. Yellow fever fever is an interesting disease because it's fairly uh, easy to identify. You can look, not all of these are, but uh, some some are. Uh, for example, malaria is easy to identify, and you can look at the, I don't want to call them doctors or whatever they were in ancient Rome and ancient Greece, we know had malaria, because you can describe the illnesses that these people had, and it's very clear it was malaria. Yellow fever is similar in that it has distinctive uh, symptoms. You get high fever, uh, joint pain. Another common name for yellow fever is breakbone fever. Uh, feel like your joints are you know, breaking your bones. Um, high fever. And uh, if it's fatal near the end of the disease, you have what's called it's black vomit, uh, vomit that looks like uh, coffee grains. And that, along with, you know, the yellowing of the eyes, it's pretty clear. You don't have to have modern-day uh, molecular technology to look for the virus. The, the symptoms of the patients are pretty clear that it's yellow fever. So we know that there's yellow fever was in Africa, and it was not known outside of Africa until I think it was 16 somewhere early 1600s. Uh, it's clear that yellow fever, there are yellow fever outbreaks in, uh, in the Caribbean, in Cuba, and in the Yucatan. So that's the first time any yellow fever is described outside of Africa. So along with the mosquitoes, those slave ships were also bringing the yellow fever virus. Okay, so we can track sort of the, you know, the, the passage and the movement of this mosquito species um, by the disease that it carries, because pretty much any time anyone who writes things down encounters this disease, they're probably going to make mention of it. Right, they're going to make the right thing. Now, what what's, I found when what was a lot of fun with this uh, article we're talking about is with our genetic studies of this mosquito, we can also begin to date the times when populations split. And what struck us, and one of the reasons we wrote the, the article, was that our estimate of the split of these new world populations from the African populations, just based on the genetics of the mosquito, was about whatever, what, 450 to about 550 years ago. And it hit right on with when the slave trade began. And so our estimates of the splits of these mosquito populations fell exactly when the slave trade began. And that's when it's sort of those two very independent sources of information uh, gives us confidence that we're, we're probably pretty, we're, we're, we're probably correct in this. So we're now looking at population genetics information or, or data that's being developed right now. And right. we're able to compare that with epidemiological data from 500, 600 years ago. Right. And, and they're kind of reinforcing one another. Right. And now t- tell me a little bit about that um, 
population genetics work, you know, how, how is that performed? You know, is this a matter of sampling a large number of mosquitoes? And how, how do you tell when those populations uh, diverged from that information? Yeah, it, it goes into population genomics. The, 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 the beauty of it is we couldn't do this 10 years ago. But the fact that today we can obtain genetic data from, you know, any, almost any organism that has DNA, <laughs> uh, and that's almost anything, um, we can look at lots and lots of genes inexpensively and quickly. Uh, to do the kinds of analyses we do it would, would have been impossible 10 years ago. Uh, well, yeah, 10 years ago. And for example, we can, we have a technique that's called a, a SNP chip. A SNP is a single nucleotide polymorphism. But basically that allows us to identify the, the genetic variants, the alleles, at something like 30,000 places in the, in the mosquito genome at a cost of about, uh, it's less than $50 a mosquito. We can get 30,000 genotypes. And we can do that in about a week. So the new tools allow us to collect a lot of data on lots of mosquitoes. We have used this tool now on about 3,000 mosquitoes from all over the world. So we have a huge database now of tens of thousands of different places in the mosquito genome. We call them loci or locus in the genome, uh, 30,000 of these. And we have this in, in 3,000 mosquitoes from, I think, 175 locations from around the world. And, okay, so that getting back to how do we use those data. So if you take two populations that have a lot of genetic data on them, lots of genes studied in many individuals, there are statistical techniques that will take those two sets of populations and say, let's assume that they originated from one population and they split at some time in the past and now they're genetically differentiated. How long would it take to get the, the level of genetic differentiation we see today. Okay, so assuming they started as one and they're now two, so we can say there's African set of populations and the South American sets of populations. How long would it have taken for the, the amount of genetic differentiation we see to accumulate? And we can, you know, with that amount of data, we can can't get it precisely, but it's, it's within a statistical range. And in this case, we take African and New World Aedes aegypti. The data will tell us somewhere between about 4,000 and 5,500 generations. The, in population genetics, you always tell time in generations. So we can estimate the number of generations it would take to get the differentiation we see. And we estimate that uh, this species probably goes through about 10 generations per year. And so that means if we're talking 4,000 to 5,500 generations, that's kind of the range, statistical range we have. That means 400 to 550 years 
again, coinciding nicely with the beginning of the slave trade. And yeah, and, and like you said, again, so we have these two independent sources of information and they sync up nicely. Correct. Right. You know, with this historical information in hand, what do we know about what the species is doing right now? Is it is it continuing to spread? Is it populating new areas and, and spreading disease in previously unknown areas? Okay, so is it still spreading today? Aedes aegypti is a classical case of an invasive species. Uh, gets it gets moved around by humans. Uh, yes, uh, it keeps coming up in new places where uh, we didn't think it was before. For example, uh, it was never reported in California. In 2013, uh, it shows up in California and. It was a fun kind of thing. Uh, the California State uh, Mosquito uh, Control people uh, contacted us, and they said, oh, we've got Aedes aegypti in California uh, now for the first time in 2013. Can you tell us where they came from? That's the other thing that these genetic studies allow us to do is to identify the origin of new introductions. And here was one in 2013 in California. Actually, it was in Northern California. It was in the Central Valley uh, on up to, uh, what was the furthest north? Close to San Francisco. Uh, and so we got there. They sent us the collections, and we figured out where they came from. They probably came from their genetically their closest related populations from Houston, New Orleans region. So we think they came from there. So that was a case in 2013 where a new introduction occurred. Uh, it's also been recently introduced into uh, Madeira. Uh, we didn't do that study, but other peoples figured out where in Madeira it showed up. Uh, in the Black Sea, uh, in, in, in Europe, back in around Russia. Actually, we just got a collection from Russia uh, that's probably a new introduction. We haven't done the genetics of that yet. We just got it a couple weeks ago. Uh, maybe one of the more interesting new introductions, and, and okay, so I have to back up here again one, another minute. As you can tell from the distribution, the species likes warm temperature. It can't overwinter where there's any freezing temperatures. So that's why in the U.S. it doesn't get much further north than southern Georgia. However, during the warm weather in the, uh, in the summertime, it can get introduced, and it does get introduced. For example, in, in the 1800s, uh, Aedes aegypti used to get introduced into Philadelphia, uh, New Haven, and even Boston, primarily because those were the three major ports for the cotton trade. The, the uh, cotton growing in the south of the U.S. was shipped up to the cotton uh, mills in New England and brought to those ports. And every year there would be a few cases of yellow fever around the ports uh, where the cotton was brought. So, but then come this time of year, October, uh, the species would disappear because it got cold and it couldn't do it. So there are no one these temporary introductions during wor a warm weather. One of the other surprising, to me at least, and I think to everybody, was a recent 
documentation of Aedes aegypti now permanently overwintering breeding in Washington, D.C. This is much further north, uh, higher latitudes than we've ever seen uh, permanently over year, you know, overwintering throughout the year populations uh, in, in have going on. And so in Washington, D.C., there is now a, a permanent breeding population. I think it was discovered about six or eight years ago. Um, again, we've been, we looked at the uh, genetics of that population in Washington, D.C., uh, and it's closely related to Florida. So probably it was brought up from Florida at some time. And now it is overwintering in Washington, D.C. Now, Washington, D.C. gets cold, and you would think that it, and it does freeze there. What it turns out where they find it, they're down in the storm drains, which is not their usual place to be. That's how they're getting through the winter uh, in Washington. Uh, and this is quite unusual for them to be down in those areas. So, and as I say, that's just in the last six, eight years or something that it was discovered and, and now we, they find it permanently breeding. So yeah, the species does continue to, to, to expand uh, and, uh, you know, into the Black Sea area, into California, and now into Washington, D.C. I wonder then, though, with the uh, 80s Egypti spreading more widely, um, you know, is there a reasonable expectation that we'll begin to see disease like yellow fever and dengue and Zika? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Yellow fever is an interesting case. There's now a big resurgence, not a big resurgence, a moderately large resurgence of yellow fever. Yellow fever was a big, big deal in, you know, uh, 1700s, 1800s, uh, first half of the 1900s. Around 1930, a vaccine for yellow fever was developed. Uh, and it's a very effective vaccine, and uh, it was widely used. And so beginning around you know, the 1930s, uh, the vaccine was used all over, and yellow fever almost disappeared. And so you didn't hear much about yellow fever after, let's say, about 1950, 1960. You don't hear much about yellow fever anywhere. There's been a resurgence in the last few years of yellow fever, in in Africa and in Brazil. Um, Brazil hadn't seen yellow fever for a long time. They're getting a bunch of it back now. Because when you have a very effective way of controlling a disease, like a vaccine, and you use it with everybody, the disease goes away, and the public health authorities and the population at large stop saying, well, yellow fever is not a big deal in Brazil. I don't need to take the vaccine. And so people quit using the vaccine and just because it was so effective and the, and the disease disappeared. And so now in the last few years, there have been uh, a resurgence of yellow fever in people who did not get the vaccine, whereas they were getting it previously, they're not getting it. So now they're re-vaccinating again. Uh, and so there's been a resurgence of yellow fever uh, for that reason. 
Right. So you get the vaccine that's very effective. So you stop worrying about the vector and then the vector is still there. Yeah, right. Exactly. And in this case, the interesting and a lot of these diseases we're talking about, they have the human cycle. So from human to human, 80s Egypti, in the case of most of these diseases, is being transmitted by Aedes aegypti, which is a human biter. So this mosquito bites one human, carries it to another human, and the second blood meal, and it gets spread. But if you stop all, if all the humans uh, who had the virus uh, took the vaccine, there was no more virus there, you would still have the mosquito biting you, but you're not transmitting the virus. The virus could still stay in the environment because it's being transmitted among monkeys. So we're never going to be rid of it completely. It's our, we'll have to remain vigilant. Well, people have talked about vaccinating all the monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> That's, people have talked about it. it it's, it's, it's possible. It sounds challenging, but, uh, but an interesting yes, process. Yes, yes. So what's next for your research? Uh, what kind of upcoming questions are you going to be looking at? Well, in the follow-up of the, the of this study that we, we published and getting to the history of the species, one of the things that we're doing right now is I told you that the mosquito went extinct in the Mediterranean. We knew it was all over the Mediterranean until about 1950. We would like to know what was the genetic makeup of the, of the Mediterranean Aedes aegypti. And to do this, we've gone to museums, and it was hard to find, but we finally found in the Natural History Museum in Paris, had a big collection of 80s Egypti, you know, pin specimens in their collection that were taken from, I think we have some from Greece, we have some from Algeria and Tunisia, we, had, we got 18 specimens, we, they didn't want to give us all of their specimens because it's always an issue when you're dealing with, with uh, museums uh, to ask them for their specimens in the museum because we destroy them. To get the DNA out of them, it's destructive. Uh, and, and so I think they had a couple hundred from the Mediterranean. They allowed us to take 18. Uh, and that's one of the things we're working on. And we're getting some, I think we're getting some good uh, information on them. We've tried to DNA sequence the DNA from those 18 specimens. And we've got about 40% of the genome. We know there's a complete known genome for Aedes aegypti now. And so we can match it to the known genome. And we have sequences for about 40% of the genome from these pin specimens. So that's one of the things that getting at the history. So uh, trying to look at extinct populations and see what was there in the past. The other big uh, aspect of our research has to do with trying to figure out, we know that um, if you go into a population of these mosquitoes and you challenge them with these viruses, and we're working primarily on dengue, which is a dengue virus, which is one of the most important right now. Um, if you try to infect these females, you give them infected blood and they take a blood meal, some of them will develop the uh, infection. Some of the female mosquitoes will not. Some of them will develop the infection, uh, but the virus, okay, so for the, for the female now to transmit this virus, she takes a blood meal, uh, she's digesting the blood in her gut, 
the virus starts replicating in the mosquito, the virus is replicating, and it has to get out of the gut into the, what's called the hemolymph, which is basically the bloodstream of an insect, has to get into the hemolymph of the insect, go from that hemolymph into the salivary glands of the female, and then the next time she bites with her saliva, the virus gets transferred to the next uh, human that, it, that the female bites. So there's this whole thing that the virus has to get <clears throat> into, the, into the mosquito gut, has to escape the gut to the hemolymph, and then has to infect the salivary glands and get into the saliva. Not all female Aedes aegypti allow the virus to do this. And so we know, for example, we have a population where about a third of the mosquito females don't become infected at all. A third of them become infected, but it never gets out of the gut. A third of them, it gets out of the gut and gets into the salivary glands. So the virus can be stopped in the female at various points. So <clears throat> what we've been trying to do is look at the genetic basis of this. Can we figure out what it is about some mosquitoes that they cannot transmit, that they won't allow the virus to get out of the gut and into the salivary glands. And that's our big push now to see if we can figure out the genotypes, if we can identify the genes that might make a female capable or incapable of transmitting the, the viruses. And so that leads to the ultimate you know, dream of all of mosquito geneticists would be to find some kind of way of genetically modifying the, the mosquito populations so that they're not capable of transmitting these viruses. And that's the, as I say, that's the ultimate dream. And we're, we're now, that's one of the main things. I work primarily in Brazil. I'm going to Brazil next week uh, <clears throat> again. Um, and working with people there trying to figure out the genetics of the ability of these mosquitoes to transmit the viruses. Well, I'm certainly not alone in, in hoping that that ultimate dream does become a reality. Dr. Powell, thank you very much for joining me today. Okay, thank you very much. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.